0: A lot of times it, it starts with colors and getting certain colors on a plate, perhaps, or it's different every time, but I always rush to get the food onto the plate just to see what it looks like. If I can see what the food looks like on the plate, then I can take a step back and see what I need to add or what I need to take off and then refine how we do it. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel.
1: My guest today is Chef Jorge Guzman from Petit Leon in Minneapolis and Sueño in Dayton, Ohio. Welcome to episode 94 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and I've been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with American culinary leaders. Don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Flavors Unknown. Chef Jorge Guzman is among the 2022 James Beard Best Chef Award finalists. We talk about his restaurant concepts at Petit Lyon and Suenio, his motivation to open his own restaurant, his creative process, the food from Yucatan, and his leadership style. Hi, Chef.
0: How are you? I'm good. You?
1: I'm fine. Thank you. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you uh, on the show.
0: Thanks. I'm excited to be here.
1: Thank you. So first, I have to congratulate you for being uh, the 2022 James Beer fin- finalist, you know, of the like uh, best chef in, in the Midwest. Yeah,
0: thank you so, so much. Congrats. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'm super, super excited for that.
1: Yeah, I guess it's not really new to you, correct? Because you have already been a finalist, a James finalist in two thousand and sixteen, uh, and sorry, so sem- semi finalist in sixteen, and then finalist in seventeen, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that five years ago, yeah, yeah. And the trajectory to get back here was was interesting.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's keep our finger crossed for when are mm-hmm. the results? Like uh, it's in in May or
0: no? They announced at the at the gala, so June.
1: June, okay, mm-hmm. in June, June, June 13th. Got a little bit time to uh you
0: know to wait. Yeah, which is good, you know, it, it ramps business up for sure.
1: Okay, very cool. So in 2021, you opened your own restaurants like Petit Leon in Minneapolis. So can you take us a little bit through like the steps that led you to take the decision to open your own place?
0: Oh, there's so many, but I think the biggest one, you know, I was in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, getting out of a really toxic work environment. And the pandemic hit, and I was just doing pop ups to kind of survive, uh, make ends meet. And I got a text from a partner of mine, Ben, who asked if I was ever going to come back to Minneapolis. And I asked, in what capacity? And he's like, well, to, to cook. And I said, probably. And that's kind of what sparked the conversation of coming back and and working there. And so I actually got fired for the job that I was in in Wisconsin because I stood up for myself and told them that it wasn't a healthy work environment. The next day I was in Minneapolis already looking for restaurant spaces with Ben. And I think for me, I couldn't work with or for anybody anymore. It was kind of and thankfully Ben was kind of that that bridge between working for someone and ownership. He he's really the one of the the biggest reasons why I own a restaurant is because of him. So that and that kind of sparked the start of Petit Leon.
1: I mean, we know opening a restaurants is a very complex and 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 you know, stressful in a situation especially context of the pandemic you know didn't help. So do you have any tips for people that uh, maybe are listening and are interested into opening their own restaurant?
0: Make sure that your the back end work on what your expectations are, what your job descriptions are as owners is make sure that you're really aware and have it written down in writing so that you can hold each other accountable all that legal work is really important to be able to have a, a, an emotional conversation later in life when you need it to happen, you know, or later in the, in the process of your partner, sometimes, you know, it, it gets hard. It gets difficult to have those conversations with your partners where, Hey, you're not holding up your end or I need you to do this. If you have it in writing, it makes it really easy. I think that's something that's super important knowing that, this is my job, this is your job, this is what we're going to do and this is how we agree upon it is really important. The opening of the restaurant, I feel if you've been in the industry long enough and have done it it's fairly easy. It's hard, but you know, it's just it's a lot of just labor, physical labor. But I think getting all your ducks in a row on the legal side of things is really 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 important.
1: Okay. You said like, you know, the other part it's relatively easy you have when you have been in the industry. How did you come up with like the the food concepts of what you wanted to you know to make at uh, at Petit Lyon?
0: That's a good question. I think you know, with me being the chef owner, you're going to get a lot of Mexican influences with the food, and it's something that I wasn't willing to kind of budge on. You know, it's like if I'm going to be the chef, if I'm going to create the food. It's definitely going to have that spirit and those flavors in it. But at the same token, you know, I needed also to understand that. We were in a neighborhood and we needed to make it a neighborhood spot. And also like the name Petit Leon is a combination of French and Spanish. And so we kind of took the idea of like French, Spanish, Mexican, a little bit of American and just kind of like made a big melting pot. And we didn't want to have our restaurant defined as a cuisine. We just wanted it to be a great space with great food. When you vocally talk about it, it almost doesn't make sense but when you go and experience it, it all just kind of comes together in this great kind of atmosphere and energy that really works. So, you know, we've got a salmon riette on the menu, which is extremely French. But then at one point we had duck carnitas on the menu, which is, you know, very Mexican. You know, stuffed piquillo peppers, which is a very classic kind of Spanish tapas, next to pan de escabeche, which can be you know either Spanish or Mexican. So it's kind of like we're just making good, tasty food at this point. And we have a burger and fries on the menu for for our Minnesota folks. You know, and honestly, I think in Minneapolis, if you don't have a good burger, you're dead in the water. So <laughs> we had to, we had to make that happen.
1: So what is your twist on the burger then?
0: If there's no twist, we just there's make no it. Twist. We make a really good. It's called an Oklahoma style smash burger, and it's you know raw onions that get caramelized, and the patty goes on top, and melted cheese, and a really good bun. And
1: so, no, no Mexican salsa influence. No, in nothing. That. Just no.
0: straight up smash burger.
1: Okay, okay. Would you describe the restaurant as like fusion food, or really like a melting pot? I mean, yeah, you use the the term melting pot, which is you know a little bit different. So. Is it
0: like I wouldn't? Yeah, I don't have a definition for the for the type of cuisine. I think that's the thing. There's no we don't want it defined. I I want people to be like myself, tongue tied when you have to be like, well, what are we like? What are we doing? Yeah, I I wouldn't call it fusion. I would just call it really great food with with no boundaries.
1: And I guess this is as well the flexibility for you on the menu to. Come up with you know something that you are inspired with. It could be either exactly. French French influence or Mexican influence or yeah or American as you
0: just or American described. Or, yeah, it you know it gives us the gives us the ability to do what we want, and our and our guests also understand that, and it it keeps things alive. You know, keeps it interesting.
1: Maybe it's a tricky question, but if you had to pick, let's say maybe one flavor. That best represent, you know, the menu at Petit Lyon. What flavor would it be? One
0: flavor. I mean, one flavor. I, I'm not really sure. I think if I had to like pick, I think there. Obviously, I think there is a a strong element of Mexican flavors.
1: And when you say Mexican flavors, so I guess it is inspired from your upbringing, you know, in in the Yucatan Peninsula. That's where the influence comes from.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the thing—the great thing about Mexico is I always say that there's a very strong vein of similar flavors that run through the whole country, but each state or region has a very specific cooking style, and the, the Yucatan is different in that it is very different from the rest of Mexico. Um, so
1: how is it different?
0: It's got so many influences from the outside world being that it was a peninsula and also that it was so insular from the rest of Mexico for so many years. Up until like the 1950s, there wasn't even trains that went through the Yucatan because of the jungles. They were just so dense. So a lot of the influences came from the port cities, the Spanish, the Caribbean, you know, the Mayans, the Aztecs, you know, all those regions, the the Lebanese, they all influenced what's called Yucatecan cooking. I think a lot of people get confused when they talk about Yucatan and they say it's Mayan food. It's not Mayan food, it's Mayan influence. The Mayan have their own food. The Yucatecans have their own food and then there's there's a, a meeting in the middle where you know there is influence from Mayans there's and then but the influence from the rest of the even the country and the other countries that came to the Yucatan is what makes that food so diverse.
1: you mentioned like you know influences that I were aware of, but Lebanese was for me, you know, uh, a surprise when I heard you, you know, mentioning it. Do you have an example of any influence on the Yucatan cuisine?
0: We're all very familiar with Al Pastor. And that's a direct influence from the Lebanese, the spits and the shawarma. It used to be lamb and goat. And when it came over to Mexico, it became pork and marinated in the adobo, the chili adobos. Another one is called Kibi. There's Yucatec and Kibbe, and it's like a street food you see all over. It's like a big falafel. You see it all over in the street corners of that, that vendors sell, and they have these really large kind of falafel balls that they cut in half, and they just put salsas inside of them, and you walk around eating that, and those are direct influences from the Lebanese.
1: Is like three dishes from the Yucatan that, that you love, particularly?
0: But yeah, there's many. <laughs> <laughs> But if I had to give you three, the cochinita pibil is one of them. Frijol uh, con puerco is another one. And there's a dish called uh, queso relleno, which is another really good one.
1: Okay. Can you just give us like a top line of, you know, what each of them are?
0: Yeah, the cochinita pibil is like a, a chiote adobo marinated pork that's wrapped in banana leaves and cooked underground. Typically served with like black beans and pickled red onions, tortillas. And then frijol con puerco is a dish of black beans, pork, rice, and condiments like avocado, onion, cilantro, lime. And you typically eat what's called a caldo, which is like your broth first. And then you have your pork and your your beans and your rice next, but the the rice is cooked in the water that the beans were cooked in. So it's black rice and the pork is cooked with the beans. So the pork turns black as well. Comes with a sauce of what's called chiltomate. It's just a super hearty dish. Queso relleno is Dutch Adam cheese that's been hollowed out. And then it's stuffed with a picadillo and steamed so that the rind becomes soft. And that's also served with a sauce of, it's called Cool blanco, which is like I liken it to what's like bechamel, but made with masa. And then a red sauce, again, a chiltomate tomate sauce on top. And then you just cut the cheese, the wheel, and you cut slices. And it's just, man, it's so good. So decadent.
1: Okay. Have you done any, let's say, uh, interpretation of those dishes at uh, one of your restaurants?
0: Or I've done, I've done Pibio. I do Pibio in Dayton right now as one of our tacos. And I've done a tostada at Petit Leon of Pibio. Frijol con puerco is a little tougher, and so is the queso relleno. Those are really tough ones to kind of do at a um, restaurant. And,
1: yeah, okay. So you do that at home for your friends and family.
0: I've done fr- <laughs> frijol con puerco for sure. I've done. I do that often, but queso relleno, I've never, I've never done. That's a, that's an all day thing.
1: So you're talking about so uh, you the other location that you know you have uh, your partner and executive chef at Sueño in uh, in Dayton, Ohio. So how is is uh, sueño different from Petit Leon or, you know,
0: Suen- vice versa. Yeah. Sueño is a 100% Mexican kitchen. We do our own nixtamal. We make our tortillas from scratch. We have a big mill in the basement. We have a nine to 10 foot hearth that we use for cooking.
1: So you're um, doing uh, nixtamalization there? or?
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, we are. Okay. And the menu is 100% Mexican influence and, and Mexican. So there's no, there's no rillette, There's no hamburger. There's no, there's none of that. <music>
1: So you grew up in uh, Yucatan. You were born in Mexico City, correct? And and then raised in Yucatan. So do you have like a smell or a taste that you remember from from your childhood in in Yucatan?
0: Yeah, a lot of them. I mean, it's hard to like. I have a lot of that's so like the sensory part of like cooking is what kind of reminds me of of home, and that, I think that's one of the you know. I Was watching Dominique, not watching, but I went to a, a speech that Dominique Crenn gave, and I remember her saying something about memories and it finally clicked for me that the reason that I, one of the reasons that I cook is because it reminds me of home and it's one of the ways to kind of transport myself back home. And I think as immigrants, that's like one of the, the main visceral ways to be reminded of home. You know, I think so many people cook their food from their, their home countries because it has that effect on them. for me, you know, obviously the lime of the smell of lime and cilantro is just, right away it takes me back but also like if the humidity is right that also like because it's so humid in in medida it's if, if i find myself in a place where the is right and there's perhaps like some tropical plants or something and like it you know it just hits you right there's a there's a place in minneapolis where we go and it's uh, i can't remember the name of it it's in the zoo the como zoo has like an uh, um a, a greenhouse that is tropical, and when I walk in there, it's like, oh my god! I feel like I'm in my grandmother's
1: so house. Transport you back, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, obviously, the smell of chilies being toasted and things like that are also very visceral.
1: Okay, staying on the on your creative approach, how do you you know start like the idea of a menu or like a dish of a menu? What's the creative process for you?
0: That's funny. It's I, would, I just did a post about this. I think. I've never really thought about my creative process, but if I had to like describe it, a lot of times it, it starts with colors and getting certain colors on a plate perhaps, or I don't know, it's, it's just very, it's different every time, but I always rush to get the food onto the plate just to see what it looks like. And I, as, as if I can see what the food looks like on the plate, then I can take a step back and see what I need to add or what I need to take off and then refine how we do it in terms of like, you know, the, the latest dish we have. Petit Leon is a uh, pork al pastor. And, you know, al pastor is typically it's a taco, but in ours, it's, a, it's an entree plate. And so thinking on how I wanted to do that was like, well, I want this to be served with a side of tortillas, but I want it to be served as like a heartier dish. So what are we going to use? You know, typically it's pork shoulder. Well, let's use pork collar. If you cut pork shoulders and use it as a steak, it's really good, but it's really chewy. So then we had to come back and figure out how do we make this palatable for people that aren't gonna be offended by like, you know, the texture of it. We wanted them to be to like it. So we we did a bunch of tests on sous it to a certain temperature and then basting it and grilling it and this and that and then Obviously, you know, pastoros has a great salsa, like a Chipotle salsa with it. So we made Modita salsa that we could spread on the plate and then all these other things. And then it's just it's a combination of like refining and refining and refining. It took like three months to get it from idea to plate. One, because I'm a procrastinator, too, because I have a lot going on, but three, because it's like it's in my head and then until I can spit it out, that's where it ends up staying. So
1: do you refine like even like the dish after it's on the menu?
0: Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we'll we'll put it on and it's like ah, let's change this or add this or take this away. But I have a really good staff. At Petit. My chef Rhett has been with me for the last seven years. He was with me at Brewer's Stable as a sous chef, so him and I have a really good rapport. And and my cooks have all been chefs or sous chefs in their own restaurants somewhere along the along the road. So I have a really amazing breadth of like knowledge and uh, experience that we all can kind of play off of and so when i needed to refine the cooking of the pork collar one of my my chefs ingrid was like well when we were at at heyday we used to do this and it's like oh well that makes a lot of sense let's try that so it makes it a little easier and then you just end up learning more stuff and that that helps your creative process and your learning process so having good staff is also like really important
1: so listening to you I guess that you have like two different steps in your creative process there's a part that's maybe first like on your own like individual and then after that there's obviously the collaborative you know efforts yeah. with,
0: with your team Most of the time it's this collaborative very rarely is it Okay start to finish just me when when it is start to finish just me those are great moments but if I've got such talent why not use it you know it's like they're they're really good and it's they all come with Ninety-nine percent of the time, I'm I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. But that one percent, I'm like, oh, that's a really great idea. Let's let's run with that. So I think it's it's wise to do that.
1: Is there's one of one dishes that you are very proud of, like that you you guys have developed, like as a team? Oh, there's
0: there's actually so many. I think our opening menu was so cool. We had this two dishes in particular. One was a lengua, and one was an aguachile. But and when you think about those two dishes, usually lengua comes in a taco and we we cured it and sliced it thin and smoked it and it came on a plate in a square very thin like carpaccio almost and then you know we garnished it really pretty with a bunch of stuff so when you you ate it you eat a square and you would fold it up with all the garnish like a little taco so it's kind of the play on that was really great and then our aguachile, chile we used hamachi but we used a what's called recado negro which is like a paste from the yucatan that's black and our the whole and then we use fermented kumquat and the whole plate was black the plate was black the food was black and then a yellow dot and so when you got the food all you saw was this yellow dot and this black food and your mind doesn't know how to process that like well what is this going to taste like and so when you Go to eat it, you're probably thinking it might be a little muddy, it might be dark, it might be, you know, you don't know. But when you ate the dish, it ate exactly like an aguachile would. So super bright and citrusy and crunchy. And really, it was really, it was a really cool dish. We we're really proud of that one.
1: So you mentioned this dark paste from Yucatan. What is, what is the, what is based on?
0: So it's called a recados. So recados are, are these spice pastes in the yucatan so if you think about like jamaica and like their jerk paste or india and their curry the yucatan has recados so recado negro is you take chilies and you literally burn them to charcoal and then you mix them with vinegar spices garlic and you make a really like dense paste and it's used in traditional stews and dishes and other things
1: this is an interesting technique that I guess is far from your you know your the background of the French techniques correct that very, you had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's usually it's very subtle and you know yeah it's like burning the heck out no, of it. Yeah know. it's
0: it's a very the, I guess the the most well known recado would be achiote. The achiote paste you buy that's that's recado rojo. And that's a very well known one. That's what you use to make cochinita pibil with.
1: You mentioned that there was two dishes when you opened the restaurant, so I guess they are not on the menu any any longer, or
0: no? We change the menu okay. quite frequently. How often do you change it? A lot. I mean, I, we haven't even been open two years. We've probably changed the menus, dishes anyway, 60, 60, 60 changes at least. Oh wow! Okay. So we part of the menu does stay stable. You know, our salmon rillette, our our peppers, our burgers, our fries, a couple other things always stay. Because we want to make sure that with the neighborhood that there are things that people come back for. And that was a big part of the ethos of the menu was making sure that we had those really great staples that Petit can be known for. And it's happened. You know, the burger is probably the best burger in town right now. And people love it and they come in for it. But then the rest of the menu, you know, as chefs, we don't want to stay stagnant. So we change it a lot with the seasons and ideas that we get.
1: So are you going to bring maybe those dishes back or...
0: I would like to definitely at some point bring them back. And how do you decide that? I think it's just on a whim. We're just like, if, or if we don't have an idea at the time and we're just kind of brain dead, it's like, well, let's bring back the Chile or let's bring back the the Langlois or something. Sometimes you're just tired and you you need a break and you just go back to your archives.
1: I've seen as well that you have um, a pop up. You know the pollo al carbon. Yeah, pollo, pollo, Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what is that, and how, how did you come up with the idea?
0: I don't know. I think I came up with it out of necessity. The pandemic. The pandemic. Yeah. And it's like I've always had an affinity. So, grilled chicken, like charcoal grilled chicken, it's a big thing in, in Mexico. And when I was down there visiting years ago, I kept going back to the same restaurant. I was like, man, what a great, what a great meal. And I just started doing it as a pop up, and then I came up with the name and. Had a logo made and you know got an LLC for it and this and that, but it you know I haven't been able to raise the money to, to to make it a brick and mortar. You think that'd be easy for me, but it's not. It's really difficult to find money, and so I've just been doing it as a pop up here and there when I have time, which is a lot of fun and people really love it. And hopefully, I can get it open as a brick and mortar sometime soon.
1: Yeah, I think it's very comforting. Correct that type of yeah, it's, oh,
0: yeah. It's super super comforting. It's like. And for me, it's, you know, it's, it's all Mexican again, which is like kind of where my heart resides. It won't, it'll be Mexican food, but it's also, it's just grilled chicken with really great sides and sauces and stuff like that. So yeah, very, I think like you said, very sauce, comforting.
1: The sauce and the, the seasoning, that's what yeah. makes the whole tasting experience,
0: I guess. Yeah, exactly.
1: So you said that uh, you just uh, touched a little bit on the idea that uh, even for you, it's tough to
0: feel, you know, get funding. So why? I don't know. (laughs) No idea. I mean, here I am, uh, a three-time James Beard, you know, two-time finalist and, you know, I've had a food and wine, best new restaurant, a lot of accolades. And, you know, I don't know. It's baffled me. I know that there's a lot of people in Minneapolis that have investors that, are kind of their, you know, every chef's kind of teamed up with an investor and that's their guy or their gal. And I haven't been able to find that person or that group of people. I'm working on it. You know, I'm actively seeking and trying to network, but it's it's tough to, it's tough for me to get out because I'm running two restaurants in two different states and I have a family and, you know, I, I'm close, I think, but you never know. Okay.
1: And so if you would have the funding, so... You said brick and mortar. So, what would be like the the, the concept of, of this pollo oil carbon?
0: Well, it's just, you know it's simple. It's pol carbon restaurants are really just charcoal grilled chicken.
1: But what I mean, it would be like a, more like a fast casual type. Now, I
0: wouldn't place. call it fast casual, but it, it wouldn't be uh, fine dining. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be super casual, but it wouldn't be elegant or elevated at all. It would be very family friendly. So,
1: cooking for the people.
0: Yeah. Cooking for the people, yeah
1: okay yep. okay very cool so good luck
0: yeah thank you yeah i <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> appreciate it
1: so you you know you went to the culinary institute of america in, uh, in hyde hyde park so what did these uh, four years brought to you
0: i actually went to
1: oh, two years okay
0: i got my bachelor's at drake university in iowa i chose to go to culinary school right after college it's a good school They're expensive I just paid it off like last year after wow. what almost twenty years. Was he worth it? Yes and no. I think if you find yourself in a good kitchen with good people, you don't need school. But what it allows you is the opportunity to network, which is huge, you know. And that that network is is vast and and very knowledgeable. Also, if you if you have the funds, it was a good experience. You know, I, I felt like it's structured in a way that you actually do learn quite a bit.
1: Do you think that you can get the same, let's say, experience and especially like the discipline and the consistency by, you know, directly working, you know, at restaurants?
0: That's where I was going is the discipline might be difficult to get depending on where you are. I think if you worked at a restaurant like the French Laundry or Per Se or any of those really high tier restaurants, you will find the discipline there. But a place like Even like Petit Lyon, there's a certain kind of discipline, but we're also a very small staff trying to get ready for service every day. And so you're not finding the the time that you might need as a young chef to learn as much because we have such seasoned chefs in our restaurant, we're able just to go full bore 100%. And sometimes we don't have the time to teach someone exactly what they need to know. And that's where culinary school might be good for them especially a place like the CIA where you're given very disciplined guidelines on how to do everything. And, and it, it does, if you take it in and allow it to do what it does, it's a good school.
1: As a leader and, you know, recruiting as well, you know,
0: new people, new cooks,
1: as you just mentioned, what is the most important for you on on their
0: resume? Just to be a good person. I mean, that's the biggest one is I don't even look at resumes anymore. I just... I ask where they've cooked, and then I, I, I gauge their their demeanor and their. So it's about the attitude. About the attitude. Yeah, at this point in my life, it's I don't want to surround myself with people that aren't like minded or that are going to waste my time or my staff. If I feel like you won't be a good fit personally, I don't care where you've worked. We just won't hire you. We just hire people based on attitude and, and demeanor.
1: Okay. Really. Okay. <laughs> So if you could go back in time and uh, at the beginning of your career and give you some yourself, like one piece of advice, what would it be?
0: I think I would have probably cooked in somewhere like New York or San Francisco. Why? Um, Because I never got that refinement, that cooking in a refined kitchen. You know, I've never, I, I do know how to cook in a refined way, but I've never worked for one of those big operations that really sh- can show you things that you might have you might not be able to do or see or learn without having to do them. And I think my trajectory might have been very different in that way. But I think I would have told myself, "Don't go back to Minneapolis. Go to New York first. You know. So the
1: advice for you know someone being at the culinary school now, it's probably to make like a short list of like great names and people you know that they they want to work for, and then. You know.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think the biggest thing is the culture. Find a find a place that you think culture is good. There's a lot of great chefs out there that are being vulnerable via, you know, social media, where you can find a place. Like for instance, Jeremy Fox out in California. You know, his restaurants are probably really great landing places for for one people that want to really learn and people that want to be taken care of in a caring sense of a, a culturally sound kitchen
1: so we're talking about you know the importance of culture and uh, you know in a a restaurant and so you are a restaurant owner you know you have and having this you know right culture is i guess very important for you so what do you do practically like to impact the culture at at, in your restaurant
0: one is trying to have a good attitude you know daily as a leader you mean as a leader if, if you're the one walking in in a bad mood or you know, always grumpy or whatever, like you're going to set the tone culturally, you know, for the restaurant as owners, you know, we pay really well. We try to do as much as we can for healthcare in the kitchen. We have four day work weeks, even for the chef, you know, we work hard when we're there, but we also two days is not enough time to be with your family. So that third day is really key. You know, we have paid vacations for our salaried employees you know, we do what we can as a small business to to keep that alive.
1: How do you manage it? What does that mean in terms of an impact for, you know, the people that come to a restaurant and, and obviously pay, you know, like the check? So how do you, you know, integrate that in, in uh, your,
0: you know, financials, you know, system? So we do a 20% service charge. That money goes to paying our staff. 100% of it does. And that allows us to pay a really high wage and what we call a livable wage for people to be able to come and work.
1: Which is what, like $20, $25 an hour? Or something? It's in that range, yeah. yeah it's in it's that range. like 20,
0: 22 to 25 an okay, hour. Okay, okay. That's kind of the norm now here in Minneapolis.
1: So I guess, you know, it's probably very different when you are a chef in a kitchen. So that means that you you have an impact on the kitchen. When you are an owner, you have an impact on the whole restaurants kitchen and and others so have you seen that you have adapted your leadership style from being a chef to becoming a, a restaurant owner I
0: think i've always been a leader so I don't think that even regardless of where I am whether it be a chef or a cook or working the front my personality tends to always lead and you know my style probably has changed as I get older in terms of Learning more and being more adaptable, and you know, molding myself into being a better leader. But I think, regardless of who or where I am, I'm always trying to lead.
1: Okay. So you said in a, I've read in a previous interview that uh, fear was a motivator, and you know, obviously things are changing step by step in the culture of restaurant. So how do you did you come about deciding like the on the language and the tone? use you know with your staff
0: i've been managed that way and i know that it doesn't work i think one of my jobs it was
1: maybe that was the job maybe yeah, the context the con- was the wisconsin job in wisconsin i guess probably maybe it
0: might have been actually at another restaurant here in okay. minneapolis where you're walking into work not knowing whether you're gonna have your job or not and the, the fear of that is just unstable that's definitely something that i do not do it just doesn't work managing by fear just doesn't work period it, it doesn't inspire anybody to want to work for you. And then they're just there because they need to be. And that's the last thing I want for anybody is, if you don't want to be at Petit Leon, then don't be. It's, it's not worth my time. It's not worth your time or our energy. I want you to be happy doing what you want to do, where you want to do it. And I think, you know, I'm not a vindictive person and you don't want to be here. It doesn't hurt my feelings, you know, that kind of thing. But fear just isn't, it's not a motivator. It, it can be for some people. It definitely motivates me to work harder because of the fear of, you know, ha- I have a family now, so I have to provide for them. And that that is scary. Being a restaurant owner and, and relying on restaurants to sustain my family is scary because of how volatile restaurants are. And to think the last two sure.
1: years... We haven't seen... Yeah. We haven't we've seen s- that. Trying to yeah.
0: support my family on that during a pandemic where all our restaurants are closing around us.
1: Probably be a lot of sleepless nights.
0: Yes. Very stressful. Mm-hmm. Extremely. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: Okay. Yeah. So let's go into a more lighter <laughs> tone here now to the conversation. I would like to pick your brain. What would be your suggestion for a home cook like you know or like myself a food enthusiasts that to cook kind of a Yucatan inspired dish and like the you know your style, what will be your suggestion and the spin that you will suggest to to put on it.
0: I would do the frijol con puerco that we talked about earlier. And I, I wouldn't do any spin on it because you need to have it th- traditional because that's the best way to have it.
1: So what is it?
0: So it's it's just pork shoulder and you cube it. And then you cook, you cook it with black beans and the pork turns black and you save some of that water and you cook your rice with that. And then you make a sauce of chile tomate, which is just tomatoes, habaneros and onions. And then you also make like a salsa habanera, which is just, you know, you can just do charred habaneros and lime juice and pulse them up. And then your condiments, which are diced onions, avocado, lime, cilantro, and then tortillas. And it, it sounds relatively easy, but it does take a better half of the day. But it's it's very satisfying. It's, it can be you can make a large batch of it and use it for the week.
1: And uh, you mentioned there's uh, habaneros, you know habanero in your in your recipe. There's a special way of cooking habanero.
0: I mean, most of the time in in Mexico and Yucatan, the Yucatan habanero is just synonymous with the Yucatan. A lot of times, it's just charred on a comal you know, or you can use a cast iron pan and just char it, blacken it.
1: Thank you again for your time. I, I just want to finish, like, our conversation with a series of rapid fire questions, if you don't sure. mind. So how would you describe the, the food scene in uh, Minneapolis?
0: It's eclectic. There's a lot of great restaurants popping up. There are a lot of great restaurants that have been here. And one thing we have is a really large Hmong population. So we have a lot of, like, great kind of, like, Vietnamese, Loatian kind of spots, which is really amazing.
1: So I know you're very busy between the two restaurants, your family, your young son. But if, let's say, I come to Minneapolis and you and I are going on a tasting tour in Minneapolis, what are like the five spots that you will take me to outside of your restaurant, obviously?
0: I would go to Estelle in St. Paul. I would go to Union Monk Kitchen. I would go to Let's see, where else would I go? Muriel also is really good. Demi. Okay. And one more. (laughs) Quang's. I would go to Quang's. Okay. What is Quang's? Quang's is a Vietnamese restaurant. Vietnamese restaurant. Yeah. Okay.
1: What is your guilty, favorite, guilty pleasure food?
0: Anything with sugar.
1: Ah, you have sweet tooth. I, yeah, I have, was, a, okay. I
0: have a w- wicked sweet tooth. There's a bakery a block from our house, and that's my dan- son and That's I,
1: dangerous. That's dangerous, <laughs> and she's
0: really good. Her her pastry work is amazing. Her her croissants, her all her work is just her laminated dough work is amazing, and. I can't get out of there without spending 35 bucks every Sunday.
1: A lot of of, of butter.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a lot of butter.
1: Very cool. What are like three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career?
0: The Yucatan is one. Jeremy Fox is on vegetables. And I really like Nopalito from Guzman. I can't remember his first name.
1: Okay. Yes, I know what you mean. Very good. And my last question, what's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen?
0: Shitty attitudes shitty
1: attitudes that translate yep. like in doing what
0: everything just <laughs> someone someone that someone that is constantly in a in a bad mood or just it's just not it's just a cancer for the culture that's that's my biggest pet peeve is like i can't stand can't stand that and then a messy station for me you know messy station means messy mind means you're not focused
1: Chef, thank you so much for being a a guest on Flavors Unknown. I really appreciate, you know, very generous with your time.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening today. You can find the show notes from this episode on our website, flavorsunknown.com. Please make sure to share this episode with a friend, a colleague, as I always welcome new listeners to the show. If you like this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, my guest will be Chef Opie Crooks of No Goodbyes in Washington, D.C. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.